things that Jesus knew in chapter 13, first three verses. The first thing was Jesus knew his hour had come. Now when he says the hour, it refers to when he would be glorified through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now from a human point of view, this is going to be an hour or this is going to be a time of suffering. But from God's point of view, it was going to be an hour for God to be glorified. Now, Jesus lived on God's timetable, and that's why we mentioned uh, the hour. Everything he did followed the schedule the Father had laid out for him. Now, I mentioned three different times in John where it says, my hour has not yet come. Those were in John 2, 4, 7, 30, and 8, 20. Now, because his time had not yet come, he enjoyed this special, unique protection from God the Father uh, because it wasn't yet time for him to die. Now, in 1223, at the end of the last chapter that Pastor Bill did last week, he says the hour had come. And again, this is the last 24 hours of Jesus' life uh, from John 13 to, the, uh, to most of the end of the book when, he's, when he dies. It was at the door. So Jesus recognized the hour. So he spent his last remaining time ministering to his disciples for what was to come and how they were to conduct themselves. Now, the last time he mentions the hour has come is in John 17, 1. And that's where he begins. It's what's called his high priestly prayer. Pastor Bill will get to that in a few weeks. But it's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And at the very beginning, he says, the hour has come. And very soon after that, he was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. Now, yes. Yes, the verses, John 2, 4, John 7, 30, and John 8, 20. Now, it only mentions that three times, but if you read all the Gospels, even though it doesn't mention that phrase, you can see several times where the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians or whoever it was was after him. For some reason, they could never trap him. They could never grab him. They were afraid of the people. All those times, you could essentially put in there, his hour had not yet come because they weren't able to do anything because God the Father had, you know what? It's my timetable. You're good. And Jesus knew the Father's timetable. He knew that he trusted the Father. So he knew he could conduct himself uh, with what the Father wanted him to do. Now, when a servant of God is in the will of God, he is immortal until his mission is complete. That's the second, or that's another fill-in under one. Now, every one of us has some mission for God to complete, or that God wants us to complete. Sometimes we don't know what it is. We could be living our entire life, walking as we should, and we don't know what the final, let's say the final... Uh, mission is, or the final, uh, final detail of the mission, however you'd like to put it. Um, now, for instance, in, I can't remember if it was the late 50s or the early 60s, actually no, it was the late 50s, there were five missionaries, and I'm sure you guys have heard of them before, they went down to Ecuador to try to witness to this tribe called the Warani, the natives of this 
or I'm sorry, other native Indians around that tribe called those Warani people the Aukas, which means, uh, I believe, savage or naked savage. And these Aukas were known for just being violent and killing anybody who came to their tribe. They considered all outsiders, uh, I can't remember, I, I just watched the video too. Yes, cannibals, thank you, you watched it with me. They considered all outsiders cannibals, and all cannibals were to be killed because they threatened the tribe. Well, these five men, and I can't remember all their names, uh, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, hold on, and there were, there were two others, but they thought, okay, God wants us to witness to this tribe. And so they spent a couple years uh, trying to make contact with them, and they did that in several different ways. And... Finally, they'd come up to this landing strip on the beach of a river where they decided they were able to land and they were making contact for the second time. And they were excited because they're like, okay, we're going to get to witness to them. You know, we're, we're getting better with our communication. But what happened was instead of being able to communicate with them, I, I think it was five or six of the, these Warani came out and basically speared them to death. And you think, oh, well, they didn't fulfill their mission. Well, actually, I think that was their mission, um, was to be a martyrs and die for their faith. And sometimes that's going to be what it is. Now, I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying they didn't have other impacts, because they did. If you read about them, they all were in different places in their life, and God all steered them there to this one place in Ecuador. And they gave their life for their faith, but what that did was their mission opened the door for their wives to go in a year and a half to two years later and minister to the same tribe and save the entire tribe. And that was their mission. Now, but they were immortal until their mission was complete. So they weren't going to die by the hands of those Indians until uh, the appointed time. And what's also unique about that, that situation is uh, the actual people or the actual Indians who killed those uh, missionaries, I believe all of them except for one became a Christian. And Steve Saint, who was the son of Nate Saint, his son, who would have been uh, Nate Saint's grandson, actually calls grandfather the man who killed his grandfather. And, he's, and they said, you know what? God's forgiveness, God's grace, it's all about those things. But anyway, Anyway, our, all, of our, all of us have an hour that's going to come. We all have a mission that we're here to fulfill. And we are immortal until that mission is complete, as long as we're in the will of God. Now, Paul, in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 7, said, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul was in prison under Nero. I believe for the second time now, and he knew that he wasn't going to get out. He knew he was going to be martyred for his faith. Um, and he had completed his mission, and his mission was several missionary journeys in Greece. I, some, a lot of people believe he went to Spain for a brief period of time, but he had his mission, and he knew his time was near. Now, this does not mean God's not going to take a disobedient servant home. It says in Ecclesiastes 17, why die before your time? If, if we are Christians who are not fulfilling the call God has on our life and we are being bad examples, and if we've truly accepted Christ and yet for some reason 
stuck in a sin or whatever the case may be, God may just choose to bring us home so either we don't cause further damage and because he's simply being merciful for us so that we no longer sin. But as long as we're in the will of God, we are immortal until his mission is complete. Now, as I said, Jesus' public ministry is over. Uh, In close to 24 hours, he's going to hang on the cross, and this is the beginning of the end for him. And again, he's going to use these last hours to minister to his disciples. So what he knew so far is he knew his hour had come. The second thing he knew, he knew Judas was going to betray him. He knew Judas would betray him. Judas is mentioned in John's gospel more than any other gospel. He's mentioned eight times. Now it says in Luke 22.3 that Satan had entered Judas. Now Satan would put the thought of betrayal in Judas's heart. Now in here it says... How does it put it? The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Now, the literal, that's, that's not an incorrect translation, but literally what that means is, or in New King James, the word is put, but literally it means to throw. Satan, or the devil, threw that idea at Judas. Now, if you remember back to Ephesians 6.16, it says we need to put on the armor of God, And it is the shield of faith with which we block the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, Judas, according to John chapter 6, verses 64 to 71, was not saved. He was unregenerate. Um, And we all know that. But he didn't have that armor, and so he was susceptible to Satan's attacks because he lacked the shield of faith. Now, only a believer can defend themselves against the fiery darts of Satan. Next thing Jesus knew. Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands. Now this is mentioned twice in John. It's mentioned in John 3.35 and it's mentioned here in John 13.3. Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he was going. So he knew the situation was under control. He didn't have to worry. And you can... Apply that to us as well. Let me see. It doesn't, this, my notes don't perfectly match my outline, so I'm going to go slower to make sure it works. Um, Jesus knew who he was. And where he was going. So he was free to... What is it? I don't even think I wrote that part down. So he was free to serve without concern for the situations. A lot of times we're afraid to serve because we look at the situations around us and we go, I I don't have time for that. I can't do that. All this stuff is coming on top of me. Now, when Pastor Bill asked me to teach today, it was Friday, I think, maybe Thursday. I don't remember exactly. But as soon as he asks me to teach, I am all of a sudden bombarded with things I didn't have to do before. 
in my situation, I could say, you know what, I could call Pastor Bill back and say, you know what, I don't have, I, all this stuff came up, there's no way I can do it anymore. But I know that it's a spiritual attack. And these are the kinds of things that would happen to Jesus. He, he would come under, and you're not sinning to come under spiritual attack or some ten, temptation. It becomes a sin when we give in to those things. So here is Jesus, constantly under attack from without and from within, because the disciples are arguing all the time. You know, he, he's frustrated with it. I, well, I don't know if he's frustrated. He's tempted to be frustrated with his disciples, who are always bickering about who's better. He's, temp- he's tempted to be frustrated with the people who are outside, who are constantly trying to beat him down. And he can say, you know what, Father, are these people really worth it? But he didn't. I mean, he knew what he was coming for. And he knew God the Father was in control of the situation. And, you know, some of the things today, I was, this morning when I got up, I said, I'm going to get off on work on time today. I'm going to get off on work on time today. And I was like, this is going to happen. It didn't happen. All of a sudden, I had to do interviews, which I hadn't planned on doing before. And they're like, okay, you're only going to have to do it for an hour. And I'm like, okay, I can do an hour of interviews and still get everything I need done. It was two hours. And then it was like, okay, well, so-and-so's coming in at such and such a time. It's only going to be two hours. Okay. I still have time. I'll just cut back on something else. I just need to do this one thing. Three hours. And then about three and a half hours, I was like, okay, I was able to go. Or was it? No, I'm sorry. It was four hours. I was finally able to go, and I left about 35 minutes late from work, which isn't bad for me. But it was still later than I wanted. But again, all these things came up. And you're going to find all these things will come up in your life that are pushing you away from the mission that God has for you or from the service that God has for you that he wants to bless you with and that he wants you to bless others with. So it's important to realize that no matter what's going on around you, no matter if you're being... Again, beaten down from without or from within because, you know, those trials come from outside at work and they can come inside from our family. All of a sudden, you could have peace all week in your house and all of a sudden everybody's angry at each other. And you've got, God's given you this mission to serve and you've got to go, okay. And you look up and you go, God, you're sovereign. You're in control. And that's what Jesus did. Father, you're in control. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm going. And as Christians... As believers in Christ, we know we've been born of God. We know that one day we're going to be with God in heaven. And we know that all we need is Christ. And so with that in mind, we can follow Christ's example and serve others no matter the circumstances. Now, what Jesus did. What you know helps you determine what you do. Jesus taught his disciples. Now again, these are the three things Jesus knows. And now we know them. We know that we're immortal until our, our hour has come, till our mission is complete. We know that as long as we have the shield of faith, we can defend against the fiery darts of the wicked. We know that God is sovereign. And we are free to do whatever we need to do within his sovereign will. Knowing that, 
helps us determine what we need to do. Now, Jesus, at this point, knows that he needs to teach his disciples. Let's say this is the second to last lesson. It's, it's, it's or the last six, half dozen lessons he teaches. But it's one of the important ones. They're all important. But he taught his disciples humility by doing the most menial task of the day. Jesus, in ministering to his disciples, gave them this one of his final lessons in humility. Now, the disciples were your typical group of competitive guys. And I can see this with them because they're always trying to determine who's the best. Now, I don't know necessarily how women view other women when they walk into a room. I've heard jokes about what they do, like, oh my goodness, she's wearing the same thing I'm wearing. I can't possibly wear that now. Or I don't know how it is. I know when I enter a room, and I'm not sure if all guys are like this, I'm looking around at everybody else and I'm going, I bet you I could take him. (laughs) Now, I think that not like I'm going to go start a fight, but I'm always in this defensive mode. Okay, if something happens, is that guy going to be on my side? If not, what's the weakness? Where's the emergency exit? And so, you know, I've got this, all this stuff in my head. Or when, I, when someone comes to work that's new, maybe a new hire, I'm looking, and I, and I, is it just me who does that, sizing people up? I hope it's not. Okay, it's only me, apparently. But the disciples were doing this. They'd size each other up. You're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. And John, John James and John, the brothers of the brothers, sons of thunder. John was known as the one whom Jesus left. Everybody knew John was the inner circle. And so I wonder if John was like, well, I've got to be the greatest. I'm in the inner circle. There's three of us in the inner circle, and I'm the one that Peter asked to, you know, Lord, who's the traitor? You know? And I'm sure the inner circle was even fighting even more about that than the other nine were. I don't even think Judas was part of the situation. I'm not, Who knows? Maybe Judas was like, well, I've got the money box, so I must be the greatest. But this is what they did. They were always competing. And what's ironic is right before this, according to Luke 22, 23, uh, before this uh, washing of their feet, they were discussing who's the best, who's the greatest. And Jesus knew this. And so he gets up in the middle of the meal and he completely gave himself to washing their feet. So if you look at how thorough he was and how he did this, first he rose from the supper. They weren't done eating yet. He laid aside his garments, uh, which probably reminded him of what it was waiting for him later when he'd be stripped of his garments to be crucified. And then he took a towel and he girded himself he, he wrapped himself in it. And finally, he poured water into the basin. Now, if Jesus just wanted to display the image of a servant, he could have had someone do all those things for him, and then he could have just taken the towel in the basin and washed the feet. But he didn't do that. He did the entire work of the servant. Not just, I mean, I could, there's times where I've been sitting down or I'll ask my kids, hey, go do this for me. Or go do this for me, and then I'll, maybe I'll complete the task. And that's what Jesus could have done. Hey, Peter, go get me this, then this. John, get me this. And then he could have sat down and, done, and washed their feet, but he didn't do that. 
He could have wiped a few dirty feet and considered the job done. And it would have given the, given the image of a servant and the image of a loving leader. But Jesus gave himself completely to the work. And that should also speak to us as when God has given us a task to do, are we giving ourselves completely to the work? Or are we just kind of given the image that we're here to serve? It'd be very easy to say, um, what is it, the, the cleaning ministry. Yeah, I showed up and I swept a corner. Or I showed up and I picked up a few pieces of trash. But there's, and I'm sure there's a lot of people in the cleaning ministry who come here and they do the be- very best job they can, give themselves completely to the work. And it's a work that's completely unseen by most of the church too. But whatever work it is God's given us to do, we're supposed to do it humbly and we're supposed to do it completely. And to realize how an extreme, what an extreme act of servanthood this was, according to the Jews, Jewish traditions and laws of the time, between a relationship of the teacher and his disciples, a teacher could not demand or expect that his disciples would wash his feet. So you could expect a servant to wash the feet, but if, you're, if I'm the teacher, and Dustin was my disciple, I couldn't expect Dustin to come and wash my feet. It, it was the wrong thing to do. It was, it was taboo. Which means it's even more unthinkable that the teacher would step up from the table and wash the feet of the people he's teaching. It was actually customary of the lowest servant in the house to wash the feet of the guests as they came in the house. Especially... Uh, for this meal. This is one of their important meals. But for some reason, this didn't happen to anybody. Uh, It didn't happen when they walked in the room. So basically, they sat and ate with dirty feet, which for, you know, my kids go outside barefoot all the time. So when they come in and eat at the table with dirty feet, I don't think anything about it. But they didn't sit at the kind of table that I have in my house. The table that they had was probably, it was known as a triclinium. And what it was, it was a low coffee table in a U-shape. And everybody basically ate by sitting on their side. So at some point, you basically have someone's feet very, very close to your head. Which means you're probably not really smelling the meal as clearly as you'd want to. Usually, the guests would sit according to their status at the table. Um, and again, they, they leaned on pillows with their feet behind them. Now, this begs the question, where was the servant? And if there was no servant, why didn't any of the disciples do it first? Now, I'm sure that any of the disciples, even though it was against tradition, would be happy to have washed the master's feet. But if they did that, they would then have to, of necessity, wash everybody else's feet. And that would mean they would have had to lower themselves below their peers. And in their mind, that would not have made them the greatest. And they would have been like, oh, I can't do that. So basically, they all sat with 30 feet. So... Jesus' actions actually speak very, a lot louder than words. In fact, 
Jesus left a lasting impression. In 1 Peter 5.5, it says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And literally in the Greek, that means wrap the apron of humility around yourself. And what did Jesus do? He picked up a towel and girded it around himself like an apron. And with that towel, he dried the disciples' feet after he had washed them. And First Peter was written decades after the event happened. And yet it, the idea of it was still so fresh in his mind that, I mean, he literally puts in the Greek, put the apron of humility around yourself. And that's just Peter. Now, Paul wasn't there at the meal, and yet Paul in Philippians speaks the same thing in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, about the humility of Christ and how he was humbled by clothing himself with humanity uh, because he didn't have to do that. He's the sovereign God uh, of the universe, and yet he wrapped himself in humanity. holy walk with God. Verses 6 through 17. My bad. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has, both, who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus washing their feet was more than just an example in humility. It had a symbolic purpose as well. When we think about being cleansed as a Christian... What do we use be what do we usually think about we're cleansed being cleansed from? It's sin. Being cleansed from sin. Now Jesus, in essence, is performing something symbolic. He's washing away the dirt, the grime off of their feet. And his blood on the cross washed us of the dirt and the grime and the sin in our life. So he's washing them. It's almost like a a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Now if we don't accept, if we do not accept the humble service of Jesus to cleanse us, we have no part with him. 
Jesus doesn't wash our feet literally, as he did for the disciples, but he did humbly die on the cross to cleanse us, and we are to receive it. Now, as powerful as this foot washing lesson was in humility, it is also, as I said, it's symbolic of the faith. The deeper meaning is Jesus has no fellowship. This is number two on part three. Jesus has no fellowship with those who have not been cleansed by him. Now, Peter's response is interesting. Now, I don't know where Peter was seated at the table. We know John was next to Jesus, most likely, because he had to lean on his breast. And Peter asked John, hey, lean on his breast to see who the traitor is. So I don't know how close Peter is. And I don't know which part of the table Jesus started uh, washing people's feet. But by the time he gets to Peter, Peter's watching all these people get their feet washed. And he's, I mean, I don't know what he's thinking. Perhaps he was thinking, I can't believe these people, would, these guys would let him wash their feet. He wants us to resist. He doesn't want us to, to touch our, he doesn't want to touch our feet. So he's refusing. And sometimes we show a servant's heart by accepting the service of others for us. If we only serve and refuse to be served by other people, it can also, that can be a sign of deeply rooted pride in our life. Now, I'm going to admit to you that I'm one of those people. In fact, my wife would say, one of my biggest failings is my pride in certain things. Not in everything. Um, but, I was raised in such a way where, let me think of how to say it. If we asked for something in my house growing up, my dad might say, and I don't fault him for this because honestly I say the same thing sometimes. I say, he'd say, why are you asking me? Your arms aren't broken. You can go do that. Or we'd, we'd make a comment and he'd say, what are your legs broken? And so my mentality growing up is, I don't need help. I can do it myself. I was raised to do it myself. My arms aren't broken. My legs aren't broken. I can do it. And so when I'm around my house, not that I never ask my children to do things for me, because I do. But a lot of times, if I'm thirsty, I'll get up. My legs aren't broken. If I need to go do something or grab something, I can get it. I can reach. My arms aren't broken. But I'm also robbing somebody else of the privilege of service that maybe Christ has for them or Christ wants them to accomplish. And honestly, that's, that's a big fault of mine because I promise you that after this Bible study, at some time in the future of this church, someone's going to say, I can get that for you, and I'll say, my arms aren't broken. In fact, I've probably said it to Steve before because Steve likes to do things for me all the time. I'm sure I've said that to him before. But that's just my mentality that I'm trying to change, huh? Okay, I know that. Uh, and just, you know, it's, uh, it's that mentality that needs to change. 
especially for me. Uh, one commentator said, man's humility does not begin with the giving of service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. But there can be much pride and condescension, condescension in our giving of service. And he says that because a lot of times we serve because we like to hear the thanks from other people. Not that that's always the case. But like I said, we have to be as much willing to receive as to give service. Now, the blank number three here under part three. We show a servant's heart not just by serving, but by allowing ourselves to be served, which is what I've said. Now, Jesus says plainly here and in other places that this is the attitude that we're supposed to have uh, that must mark the fo- his followers. And in First Peter, uh, which I just mentioned, it's... He's mentioning specifically the leadership of the church there. Uh, Peter's talking to the elders in the church. That is to be their mark of service, serving and allowing themselves to be served for the glory of God. Now, we don't need to literally wash each other's feet today, and I know you've heard Pastor Bill say that before too. And there's nothing wrong with the ceremony symbolically. I have been a part of it a few times. Um, Actually, I hated being a part of it because I hate people touching my feet. But it's, uh, it's symbolic, and it, it can be symbolic of how we should serve each other, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we wash each other's feet, not by literally wash each other's feet, by being a by, but by being available to do any tasks that not just our brother and sister in Christ would need, but anybody outside the church to minister to them. What, when I'm at work, I don't do anything that I wouldn't ask my employees to do. I would never ask them, and you know, I've been maintenance at my old church before. I have cleaned up some extremely gross things in bathrooms before. So when I ask people to do something, it's not something I've done very low things. And I don't say that because I'm great. I didn't like doing it at the time. Trust me, it was foul. But we have to be willing to do those things. Um, When you go to countries like Cambodia and Mexico, and you have to be willing to go to those places, and sometimes they don't smell great. They don't look great. And sometimes you're wondering, why am I here? And then you see the people and you go, that's why. So you've got to be willing to lower yourself, lower your expectations as to what you think you should be able to endure or should have to endure in order to serve those, serve others. And we also have to realize that you could think of this in a symbolic manner. You can wash someone's feet by ministering them to them the word of God. Because as I said, the, uh, the grime in the sin of the world and the insults that people hurl at people, they can beat people down. I had someone at my work and she had said, she's a Christian. She said, I feel like I'm failing. She said, I, I, I'm always under attack. And I don't, she said, I don't know what to do anymore. And I said, well, maybe you're under attack because Satan knows you're going to be effective. 
And she thought about it for a second. She said, she's, she was like, thank you. I, I, you know, she was encouraged because she's like, you know, Satan's trying to limit me from being effective, which means I'm being obedient to God in the first place. And so she got the whole thing. And so when Satan is trying to beat people down and Satan is that grime that's hindering people's feet or trying to trip them up, you know, we encourage them. And it says, I mean, open to a page in the New Testament and find a place where it doesn't say encourage your brothers in Christ in some wording. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. A traitor in the midst. Verses 18 to 30. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Uh, and that's a, that's a prophecy from Psalm 41.9. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As Judas, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. So Jesus shows that he is in control of these events by revealing the traitor. He doesn't have to worry about anything that's going on. Again, as we see in the, the beginning of the chapter, God is sovereign. Jesus trusts the Father. He knows who the traitor is. He's not worried. And I'm not sure how early Jesus knew he was a traitor. I personally think it was probably from the very beginning. And yet for these entire three and a half years, Jesus ministered to Judas, knowing that he was the enemy, that he was the one who was going to betray him and crucify him and give him the traitorous kiss. Knowing all those things, he still loved him. He still washed his feet. And what's interesting is, when you dipped the bread, at least the bread in this ceremony here, and handed it to someone, it was a special honor. That person was given an honor. So Jesus honored the man who was going to betray him. Jesus, you know, knowing this entire time he was going to betray him, showed him great love, gave him a chance to repent. The 
the washing of feet displayed a degree of heightened love. Oops, where I lost my place. I'm sorry, a degree of sacrificial love and service not seen before the cross. So the washing of feet displayed a degree of sacrificial love and service not seen before the cross. And then number three under number four. Before the cross, giving the dipped bread to Judas showed the height of love we are to have for our enemies. So before Jesus died, he gave Judas a piece of bread. The greatest honor you could give somebody he gave to his enemy. But after, once he died on the cross, that was the greatest thing he could do for his enemies was die for them. Even if he rejected them, he died for the sins of all. Now, Judas departs into the night, and it may have been, and we don't know exactly what it was. I mean, we know it was prophesied beforehand that Judas was going to betray Jesus. But we don't know why, other than that Judas is really a symbol of what it is to be sinful man. Because a lot of this world, I believe, was it on Sunday or last Wednesday, Pastor Bill was talking about the wide road to destruction and how many people find it. And he compared that to the road in Maui, I think, some backwater or back road in Maui. And all of mankind is like Judas in that they look at this humble Messiah and they go, I don't want that. I mean, the disciples were all looking for a great political leader and he washed their feet. Maybe at that point, Judas finally turned and said, I don't want any part of that. I'm definitely taking those 30 pieces. Because he was looking for prominence. But anyway, he departed into the night, and that was symbolic also of his final turn, because into the night, into the darkness. And Judas, he died remorseful, but he did not die repentant. Now, glorifying God, verses 31 to 38. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So when you look at verses 31 and 32, there's a key word that stands out, or two key words, glory and glorified. God is glorified, the Son of Man is glorified, God is glorified, glorify the Son, and glorify him at once. Five times 
the references to glory in two verses show us that Christ show us five references to glory in two verses show us I don't know what I wrote there oh I know what it was show us that Christ thought the cross in terms of glory or in terms of victory instead of humiliation. So it's in terms of victory instead of humiliation. I wrote the sentence wrong, which is why it threw me off. But part five, the first blank, first and second blank are victory and humiliation. Now he goes on to the next verse, verse 34. Actually, verse 33 first. When he told them, where I'm going, you can't come, this was another blow to them. Because even though he had already said this, it was like when I'm talking to my kids about doing a chore, it went right over their head. Uh, They weren't paying attention. And this is what the disciples were doing. They were so caught up in what they wanted to do and they're probably imagining their positions and imagining, oh, I'm going to be the greatest. And this is what my kids do. They're so distracted over what they might want to watch, what they might want to read, that they might get to jump in the trampling, that it completely goes over their head. Oh, wait, what did you want me to do? And this is what the disciples were doing. They were so distracted by the things around them and by their own thoughts of, you know, who was the greatest, that they missed what he said the first time. And so this is kind of a shock. What do you mean, we can't follow you? So they were kind of blindsided. Now, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. The new commandment was not new as if something was invented. Something was just invented. But new implying freshness. And this is what I mean by that. It's not like the Old Testament didn't say, love your enemy. Or it didn't say, love those around you. The Old Testament is littered with stories and examples of how people were to love your enemy. They were to love your enemy. There was one case in the book of Kings where Elisha, I believe it was the Assyrian army, The Assyrian army was blinded. Elisha took the Assyrian army and led them into the heart of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, not Jerusalem. Samaria, I think it was. And the king of Israel said, shall I kill them? And Elisha said, no, you're not going to kill them. You're going to feed them, you're going to give them water, and you're going to send them home. And this was an army that had come to obliterate Israel. And what did God have Elisha do? Love your enemies. And that's not the only example. There's plenty of other examples similar to that in the Old Testament. So this isn't new. But what's new about loving your enemies is the example that Jesus, or I'm sorry, this new commandment about loving is the extent to where Jesus took it in the example he set. Whereas the Old Testament said men should love their neighbors as themselves, the new law said you should love your neighbors better than yourselves to the point where you're going to die for them. 
which is exactly what Jesus did. Now, number four on your outline is love is the mark of all true, of true believers. All other criteria are secondary. And there was a uh, Christian historian, Christian uh, leader in the second century. His name was Tertullian. And he quoted the pagans as talking about the Christians like this. They'd look at the Christians and they would say, see how they love one another. It was a mark of the early church. It's not as much of a mark now for some churches. Hopefully not this one. We seem to love each other. At least it seems that way. Uh, But you know what? It's so easy to get caught in disagreements about how to do things or just, why didn't that person do this for me? You know, we... It's easy to look at another brother and sister in Christ and say, well, they're not doing as much as I am. Or, why can't they do this for me? There's a verse that says, who are you to judge another man's servant? Now, I have different ministries. Dustin has different ministries. Steve has different ministries. Linda has different ministries. Everybody has different ministries. And we don't all see what everybody is doing behind the scenes. Even my daughter has started helping in hospitality. Everybody has something they could be doing. But we don't judge each other for that. A lot of times, really what we should be doing is going up to Steve and saying, Steve, I appreciate what you've been doing. And he's not doing it for thanks. He doesn't need our thanks. He's more than happy to serve Christ just as what he does. I mean, he, he probably does it better than anybody else in the church, just how jovial he is all the time. I, I, I wish I could be that happy all the time. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I mean, I mean, I know people have gone up and encouraged Mariah, and everybody should be encouraging each other in their ministry. But a lot of times it becomes a comparison, and it shouldn't be that. It should always be lifting up each other in love. Uh, even in, um, I can't remember where in 1 Corinthians, there's a verse that says, when you prophesy... Or you could almost translate it when you're teaching the word. One of the things that should be there in the teaching is encouragement. So if Pastor Bill and I are up here beating you, we're leaving something important out. Now, should there be messages that are stern about sin and why it should be turned its back on and why we should repent against it, those things are necessary. But even Jesus always ended in encouragement when it was necessary. And it may not have been for the religious leaders in hypocrisy, because they didn't, they needed to hear the harsh rebuke. But everybody coming to Jesus with a humble heart, he didn't beat them down. He encouraged them and lifted them up. And that's how we get together. I mean, we're not going to believe everything other denominations believe. That's never going to change. I'm always going to believe different than, what is it, Presbyterians down the street? I know someone who goes to that church. He's a good Christian man. I don't believe everything he believes, but I'm more than willing to talk to him about our faith. We may not agree, but we can agree to disagree and still talk civilly about it. And we should be able to do that with other denominations. 
but love should be our unifying factor. And unfortunately, too often our strife and discord tear us apart instead. But in conclusion, there's only four things I'm going to say. One is be humble like Christ. One is be faithful to your calling despite the circumstances like Christ. Be loving like Christ and follow his example. There was a Nike commercial probably 20 years ago now when Michael Jordan was playing basketball for the Bulls. And the commercial was, I'd like to be like Mike. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. I memorized the song a long time ago. I'm not going to sing it for you. But I'm not going to sing it. But my friend and I, uh, uh, he's a pastor now, um, changed the words to, I'd like to be like Christ. And we had lyrics and everything for it. But um, that should be our goal, and that should be the song of our heart, is to be like Christ. So with that, let me close in prayer. Unless there's questions. Okay. Lord? The 12th of October is? No, I know that. I'll post that on Facebook. Okay. Yeah, I'll look that up. I didn't either. Okay. Lord, I thank you for this time we got to spend in your word. I pray it was fruitful and profitable, and I thank you for giving us the privilege of studying freely in this country still. And Lord, may we may we be willing to sacrifice for each other and to be humble towards each other and just to show your love. And I pray that that would be the mark of all of us, that no matter the differences between us, no matter the differences of ideals or uh, differences in doing different jobs, may we accept each other and love each other as you love us. Lord, help us to grow. Help us to be washed with the water of your word so that we can grow. In Jesus' name.